Escape velocity. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to episode three of Escape Velocity Radio. So, Derek, there appears to have been a great kerfuffle in the activist, progressive activist, radical activist movement of North America recently. Can I describe it to you? Do you know about it? I No, I, this is new. Yes, I do. Please explain it, though. Okay. For our listeners. Well, apparently back in February of this year, Chris Hedges, well-respected Pulitzer Prize-winning intellectual and journalist, wrote an article on Truthdig, the worst name website on the web. <laughs> Hey, man, they're digging for truth. Leave them alone. Truthdig.com. And he called it the cancer in Occupy. Right. Chris Hedges is a supporter of the Occupy movement, has been a vocal supporter of the Occupy movement, and he came out with an article called The Cancer in Occupy. Read it. And I thought to myself, cancer? I'm not going there. I don't want to get cancer then. Cancer? I hardly even know her. The cancer he was referring to, Derek, was the black block. Right. Chris, what is the black block? Well, according to black blockers, people who participate in black blocks, a black block is a tactic for protests and marches where individuals wear black clothing, scarves, ski masks, motorcycle helmets with padding, or other face-concealing items. The clothing is used to conceal marchers' identities, allow them to appear as one large unified mass, and promote solidarity. It was a tactic developed in the 1980s. I'm reading from Wikipedia. The tactic was developed in the 1980s in the European Autonomous Movement protests against squatter evictions, nuclear power and restrictions on abortion, and other things. Black blocs gained broader media attention outside Europe during the 1999 anti-WTO, World Trade Organization, demonstrations. When a black bloc damaged property of Gap, Starbucks, Old Navy, and other multinational retail locations in downtown Seattle. So this was a very controversial article, Chris. Well, the Hedges article was turned a critical lens on the black block. People went ape shit about this. Yes. And particularly people who like to dress in black and cover their faces at protests. Or those who support these people right. and the, this tactic. Right. You know, I did read this article, Chris. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I even had, I posted on the Facebook at the time. Are you familiar with this? Uh, the Facebook. I'm, I'm f- I know what it is. Yeah. <clears throat> that uh, I was a little surprised at this article by Hedges because I'll, generally a, I'm a fan of his writing. I think his analysis and insight are very valuable. And although a lot of this, what he had to say in this article, I understood and could agree with, his characterization was odd. In fact, one of his opening paragraphs states, black bloc adherents detest those of us on the organized left and seek quite consciously 
to take away our tools of empowerment. The real enemies, they argue, are not the corporate capitalists, but their collaborators among the unions, workers' movements, radical intellectuals, environmental activists, and popular movements such as the Zapatistas. Which, reading this, I... I don't understand where that comes from, really. I'm not sure what a lot of what he says in this article is based on. Well, I think I think he found some of that through a cursory study of online materials. Yeah, I guess. Probably older stuff. It sounds like black blockers have responded that, that this material is 12 years out of date, Yeah, some of his, his claims. But there is something to what he's saying about not just people who participate in black blocks, but people who consider themselves and are entrenched in the idea of being radical— Yes. about how they perceive other elements of the so-called left or the progressive movement. That Pretty much everybody's a sellout. They want to be the vanguard of revolutionary activism. Right. There, there's they're, no, not, they're not concerned with mainstream support or right. building a large movement. There, there is an element of that. We know that. We know that to be the case because you were that guy. <laughs> I was. I was that guy. So was I, except <laughs> you were always fucking out radicaling me. <laughs> No, but it, it exists. It's just you can't you can't paint everybody with the same broad brush. But the point of the article, I think, was to paint it with a broad brush to illustrate an important point. Right. And I think my take on all this, Derek, is that they're both right. How egalitarian of you, Chris. Well, here's what I think, Derek. Yes. Can I tell you what I think Please about this whole do. thing? Please do. Please do. I'm desperate to hear it. By the way, go to the show notes if you want to read the original article, The Cancer in Occupy, or... Uh, Particularly some black block responses like by David Graeber. It's, yeah. uh, it's relatively reasonable, I would say. Yes. But I think it's weird to me. I, maybe this is just indicative of where my life is going, where I essentially agree with everybody on the planet about everything <laughs> at different times. But I think the problem is both are right. I think Hedges is right about the intoxicating allure of redemptive violence and hypermasculinity as a road that leads to, eventually it leads to atrocities within any movement. Right. It's happened time and again. He's probably seen it firsthand in many parts of the world. Yeah. And uh, I think that's true. And I think that's the essence of the article. It doesn't matter that he put the word black block or the word cancer is in there. It doesn't matter. Like, just scrape away that superficial stuff and understand what he's saying. At its core, he's right. Like if, if we become intoxicated by the allure of redemptive violence in the name of our causes, we're going to end up like every other movement has, which is just a violent, ridiculous movement. At the same time, and I think Hedges would actually agree with this, the black bloc is right that there are limitations to things like letter writing and peaceful protest, at least protest that isn't mass protest. And right now there is not really mass protest, right? I, I would agree. I would agree. There's not millions of people in the streets. It, you know, if there were, I would definitely take a picture of that and post it on Twitter. I'd smash your camera. <sighs> Hedges is right that we cannot match the firepower of the surveillance state in any capacity. No, of course not. It's ridiculous. It's futile to think we can win on those terms. We should all know this. Yeah. At the same time, people who advocate black bloc tactics are right that people should organize to defend the public from state violence. Hedges is right that we need a mass movement where families with strollers and grandmothers in those strollers are normal participants. Wheelchairs, wheelchairs, that's what those are called. Not exceptions. I call them strollers. Diapers. Not exceptions, right. but, the, but the norm. Yes. That, that is true. Like yeah. if, if it's just going to be a bunch of people between 20 and 39 at these things, mostly male, dressed in black, listening to some old 
Propagandy records. Some old profane existence record, which is a, just a cartoonish characterization, and I apologize to all you out there for making that. Then we're doomed anyways. Yeah. So he's right about that. On the other hand, I think people who advocate black bloc tactics tend to be right that the movement against the prevailing order must become more militant to succeed. So they're both right in all these cases, but I don't think they actually disagree about these points. A lot of it is, it's the optics, it's, the, the, it's how these arguments are made, it's the, the preconceived notions that each has about the other. Right. Chris Hedges being the old codger white guy who comes from the establishment and the crime think and the black bloc supporters, him viewing them as this fringe, ratty element, him ascribing all sorts of traits to them as some sort of mass group, which don't necessarily exist. Yeah, it's a cartoonish version of each end of this discussion or debate. Mm -hmm. I think the Hedges article could have been written a bit differently and made the same point without creating all this kerfuffle. Yes. But I do think people who empathize with black bloc tactics should not have taken the bait so easily and or been so sensitive to this whole thing. It's crazy. Like the, I don't understand the allegations from the black bloc side that Chris Hedges has put their lives at risk. I don't yeah. understand yeah, that. Yeah, it, it's that I find ridiculous, which is repeated throughout that, the David Geraver response article. And also, I guess we should tell our listeners, why, why are we talking about this now? Why are we having this discussion right now? I don't know. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> because just last week, a debate was held right. in New York City between Chris Hedges and Brian Traven, who is from the Crime Inc. ex-workers collective, him representing a, a sympathetic view to the black bloc tactic, him saying he's taken part in black blocks and these are his friends, people he organizes with. Uh, so this debate was held. You can watch a video of it. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. A lot of this discussion is informed also by this debate, which is just an extension of the article, really. Yeah, and, and the internet explosion of anger and yes. vitriol. There's a difference between people showing up uh, masked at protests, wearing black, showing that they're the people there who are willing to take more physical direct action and identifying themselves as such. And then, for example, misdirecting the police or... Uh, serving as a shield against other protesters there. Okay, There's what, a difference between that and them just, you know, say, running amok, smashing windows, turning over cars or looting stores. You, you know, there's very different degrees of what people engaged in a black block might do. And you could look at them very differently in terms of tactics. Yeah, but, but, and Hedges acknowledges that during the debate and says, he does, if but, you want to take the black block tactic, go ahead just don't direct the police and, and their repression towards the mass protest that is... Okay, well, here, here's the other core issue that I think doesn't really get addressed by anybody. If the black bloc want to take direct, physical, militant action against the police or whatever, why don't they ha have a different demonstration? Like, instead of going to Zuccotti Park, why don't they go to another park? You know, a completely separate thing. Why go and identify, like, you wear black to identify that you are willing to step it up compared to everybody else? Why? Well, it has been framed as a way so that other people there can know that these are the people that might branch out. Isn't, so that, isn't that a bad tactic in the be in, to start with anyways? Because the police just look around the crowd. There they are. Let's go get them. Yeah, well, that could certainly be argued, yes. And what the actual goals are of this tactic as well. Again, there's not just one tactic. And this is something that was not really ever answered during the debate is what are the goals of the Black Bloc? 
Hedges is coming at this from an angle where he sees the black block as these people go and they try to fight cops and they smash windows, which is in what I have seen and seen documented. This is a lot of what happens with this tactic, but it's not the only thing. And it's not, the black block is not a monolith. It is a diverse group of different people taking different tactics all in a similar framework. For myself, I don't see the upside. I don't see the upside of taking this tactic, especially considering the potential negative consequences, not only for the people involved, but for the larger movement that they're, or demonstration that they're doing this connected to. And the best answer that Brian could come up with at this debate was that it made people feel empowered, which is an abstract. But it's also something we can relate to. And I, yeah. like from direct experience, here's, here's my big on the other hand. On the other hand, I've been at things like Quebec City in 2001 and had rubber bullets fired at me, had tear gas canisters fired at me. And I, it's actually two sides of the same coin because every time somebody threw a gas canister back or threw a rock at a cop and hit them, or when somebody who will not be named speared a police car going 60 kilometers an hour with a stop sign, I was so jacked up and excited that we had been able to do anything against them you know, I was thrilled. I was, it was thrilling because I can totally relate to the intoxicating allure of redemptive violence. I have that in me. It's sitting there waiting. It's waiting for something to, to be violent against, to lash out. And I think everybody has that. And we have to be, we sitting in this basement doing nothing. We have to, we have to be self-reflective about that and aware of it when we engage the surveillance state mm -hmm. on the street. None of us are perfect. In a, and a, especially in a mob or a group, even a, just a group, not even a mob. A, a group can so easily become a mob. It's, it's amazing. Things just get out of, out of control really easily because we are all very imperfect. Which I, I think is also reflected that self-reflection appears to be sorely lacking in a lot of the supporters uh, or participants in the Black Bloc tactics, as shown at the debate when Hedges is continually heckled and has all sorts of accusations thrown at him from the crowd you know it's just a yeah despite the fact that the moderator has asked the crowd repeatedly yeah yeah and so it shows that yeah it's just a knee-jerk reaction against there is there is no internal reflection on what it means to be in a group committing acts of destruction i don't know it's yeah. but there and then again there is a there is a role at, at some point there there will be a time and place for a black block like tactic when we have a, a larger movement. But the implication is that by making the movement explicitly nonviolent now and excluding certain tactics now, that then therefore we're excluding them forever, which makes no sense. Any struggle can change its tactics as needed as the people involved in it see fit. So, and, I, and Hedges acknowledges that during the debate as well, that in different struggles, the time has come where there has unfortunately and regrettably but out of need, violence has become the de rigueur tactic of a movement. And by writing it off at the moment, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything for the future. And, I th and again, the point I think Hedges is making is we need millions of people in the streets first. Yeah. And millions of the, or uh, some portion of those millions need to be from the security apparatus who've, who who re refuse to any longer repress the people who sympathize like he's seen when the wall came down 
he saw the police refuse to fire on protesters in former Eastern Bloc countries. You know, the, the police began to side with the people on the streets. And why, why wouldn't you want that to happen? Why would you mock that goal? Why wouldn't you want people to defect from the security apparatus to the Occupy movement? It's part of a larger issue, I think, that there's this deep-seated cultural uh, idea within the radical left, which is part of this, this human inclination when fighting some sort of perceived battle to dehumanize your opponents. And like this is why I don't want people calling cops fucking pigs or spitting on cops. Because to me, maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but even when people are arrested and, and you know, they cut deals with the state and then all of a sudden they're, they're rats or they're snakes or it's just all this language that dehumanizes people and you're basically just shutting the door on how people change and tactics change and needs change. If we're going to build a better world, everybody who is in it now is either going to have to be in that world or we're going to kill them. So, you know, like how we should come to terms with that and realize that just because a cop is beating you and arresting you today does not mean that them or their family or their kids are not going to be part of some future world you're trying to build. Yeah, that's a tough one. To be honest, like I watched that uh, If a Tree Falls movie about alleged eco-terrorism in the States last week, and they, there was a short five-minute montage of instances of police brutality. And as the images went by, I was just, you know, I was sitting there clenching. I wanted, I wanted to jump through the screen and fucking attack the cops. Yeah. Because the cops they dehumanize themselves by what they do, you know? Yeah. And that not just all wearing the same uniform and hiding their faces, hiding their badge numbers, but the things they do in the name of the corporate state lend to their own dehumanization. So all that footage of people who are tying themselves to logging trucks to stop them, and the cops are sitting there. Holding their eyes open. Holding their eyes open and pepper spraying them in the eyes. Try to imagine if that was your partner, Ruth. Yeah. Could you rise above your instincts in that situation? Yeah. I, I don't think I could. And my first instinct would be to kill that person. It, it would be difficult put in those positions again, seeing friends or even political comrades go through that stuff and rise above my instincts to violence. So again, it's just a, a very complex issue. I think that that's a common experience, which is why people do, why they react to the cops. And the cops provoke the crowds because they know they can. They can provoke us. And then we react because we can't fucking stand it anymore. We can't stand to watch it. And we can't stand that they always get away with it. So ultimately, we have to somehow rise above that as people and be better humans. And well, endure, yeah. endure some of that repression until the numbers increase where it's like... Endure a lot of it. Yeah. Because there's a lot more of it. A lot more of it. But endure it until there's so many people that the cops don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. We're yeah. fucked. Well, because this is exactly, yeah, this is exactly what is leading to people taking these tactics because they feel the exact same way. The problem is there is no positive outcome to it other than for that brief moment, you feel like you're doing something. You feel empowered, like you're striking back. But at the end of the day, no one is better for that. And in fact, you're probably worse off for it in the big picture. I'm not saying that 
cops in what they do a lot of the time are not despicable in what what they can do and somehow live with because you know they are it's it's bizarre and crazy and they are made up of a lot of people who are probably basically just thugs yeah i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say well yeah it's i i'm not even anti-police like in the sense of having some sort of like a contingent of society which we empower that that mediates conflicts yes but the reality is before they mediate our domestic conflicts their first service is to the corporate state they defend it that's that's their primary purpose in the society and people shouldn't forget that i'm sure if you looked at the budgets of police departments that's where you would see the money going yeah i would be so pro police if they tended to conflicts in our city and they were part of persecuting the corporate criminals that fucking run the state. If they, you mean if they were concerned with actual justice, with actual crime, as yeah. opposed to quote unquote law and order, yeah, which means defending the status quo, whatever it is, regardless of whether it is just, yeah. Because there's, I mean, I know enough good people who are involved in law enforcement, but you can't populate a bad institution with good people and make the institution good. No. So ultimately, Hedges was wrong to paint the entire concept of a black block with the same brush. But the black block or black block sympathizers are wrong to take personally the essence of what this elder in resistance is trying to tell us about violence. If people want to engage the strongholds of the corporate state directly and militantly, there are other things you can do outside of these peaceful protests that are trying to attract families and the mainstream, there are things that can be done that would make more sense yes. outside of that and would be, be energy better spent. So Chris, speaking of clandestine activity. Gone awry. You mentioned that you watched uh, If a Tree Falls, the documentary, the other day. Yes, Derek, I did watch If a Tree Falls, a story of the Earth Liberation Front. Chris, can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what this documentary follows? Uh, The filmmakers follow a man named Daniel McGowan, Mm -hmm. who is accused of eco-terrorism. It sort of takes you on a roller coaster ride of of ideas and emotions. As uh, as I mentioned earlier, they show the montage of police brutality and of horse slaughter. And during that moment, I want to kill cops and burn down slaughterhouses. slaughterhouses. Then it takes you on the downside of that and shows some of the folly of the actions where they burnt down a place under false pretenses. Right. Some, they thought a place was bioengineering trees. But it was just, hy- ge- it was just hybridizing trees. Yeah, so they fucked up. I mean, that's like sort of Keystone Cops <laughs> moment. They also, they interview some of the people who own... The owners of that, of the, that paper mill. Or logging companies. So they put a human face to some of the people involved. I don't really buy the arguments of the loggers so much where they claim that people misunderstand what loggers do. There's clear footage in the film of fucking ecocidal clear cuts. The way the filmmakers pace the film, it kind of takes you in and out of the rage and in and out of thinking what should be done, what could be done, how should you do it? Does this make sense? Is it productive? Is it worth the price if you get caught? Mm -hmm. But maybe it is worth the price. Like I, I was pulled every which way in the movie. The interesting thing about the movie is that it also gives a bit of like a genesis story for the Earth Liberation Front, and it talks a little bit about the Animal Liberation Front as well. 
I think it shows a good kind of timeline of how these things, how these actions have progressed, uh, how they've been decentralized, how they've been very hard for law enforcement to do anything about, and also about the history of nonviolent violence in that there have been no people injured right. in these actions. But there's definitely, when they're talking about the, the wild horse slaughter plant, there have been protests against this for years in the local community. No one wanted it there. Yet nothing could be done. And then they burnt it down and the company went on to business. And I was just like, yes. Yeah. Fucking A. Not totally unrelated to discussion about the black block. Obviously, there are different tactics. These tactics, for the most part, got the goods. And they didn't endanger anyone's lives. And they, well, yeah. well, that's not true. I mean, they didn't. You can, you're, when you're burning shit down, you're always potentially endangering. But nobody was hurt. No. You know, obviously, that's a whole discussion of whether, you know, you are pretty much unilaterally deciding how things should go and you're going to make them go that way. But of course, this is what the state does every day is they pretty much unilaterally, those in power decide how things are going to go. The voices of citizens go unheard and that forest is locked or those animals are slaughtered or those chemicals are fucking spilled by Enbridge into the river or the lake or the tailing pond and the birds are killed. <laughs> it's just like, and those no, are all unilateral decisions too. And none of that is, is identified as terrorism by the corporate state. Yes. Whereas people who are trying to stop that are identified as terrorists. All of that stuff, the oil spills, the slaughters, the ecocide of the forests, it's all collateral damage in the pursuit of free market capitalism. Yeah. Which isn't the free market. It's all subsidized by our fucking tax dollars. So a thought-provoking, important film. I would suggest that all of our listeners watch it. Oh, yeah, especially yeah. for the fact that uh, I'm in it. <laughs> you are in it for a few seconds, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. If you look at the end, if you pause the credits, my name's in there too. Really? Yeah. I didn't even know that. You're more famous now than you were before. My opinion of you just went down. <laughs> now I'm a celebrity activist sitting in a basement doing nothing. So you can find a link to If a Tree Falls in the show notes. Uh, you should check it out. You can get it on DVD. You can get it on the iTunes. Highly recommend it. I would recommend it alongside Earthlings as another must watch. But I would also recommend it alongside a book called Green is the New Red by Will Potter. Ah, yes, Will Potter. It would be great if we could interview that guy. That's never going to happen. Will Potter is an award-winning author and journalist whose primary focus is the environmental and animal rights movements and the criminalization of dissent in the United States. His 2011 book, Green is the New Red, an insider's account of a social movement under siege, is an engrossing, fast-paced journey following two groups of animal rights and environmental activists branded domestic terrorists by the state. It also examines the broader context of the domestic terrorism and eco-terrorism monikers and their implications for social justice movements in the future. Will Potter, welcome to Escape Velocity Radio. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris and Derek. An honor? An honor, no less. <laughs> cool. Will, your book recounts a morning in 2002 when you awoke to find two FBI agents at your door. Can you tell us why they were there and why they wanted to talk to you? Sure. So at that time, I was working as a reporter at the Chicago Tribune in uh, Illinois, and I was covering shootings and breaking news and the kind of 
we call it cop shop or blood and guts reporting at the newspaper, you know, and it was leaving me really feeling pretty dark and depressed. I mean, it's not what I went into to journalism to do, you know, I wanted to feel like I had some kind of positive impact in whatever small way on the world through my journalism. Um, so this is a long way of saying I decided to go out leafleting with some animal activists in the area. Uh, I had a background in a variety of social movements uh, when I was living in Austin and in college, environmental protests and animal rights organizing, uh, protests against the World Trade Organization in Seattle and things like that. And so we went out leafleting, and that's all we did. We hung door knockers in a residential suburban area north of Chicago against a animal testing company called Huntington Life Sciences that was really notorious for being exposed you know, several times doing things like punching beagle puppies in the face because their veins were too small in an animal uh, test, doing things like exposing uh, you know, vivisection on primates while they were still alive. And so we hung these door knockers to raise awareness in the neighborhood about the ties of a executive to this company. And we were arrested and charged with disorderly conduct. And all those charges were, of course, thrown out of court later because you have a right to leaflet. Um, but like you said, those FBI agents came to my door that morning and it wasn't really about the leafleting. It was using that as an opportunity to try to harass and uh, intimidate local activists. And they specifically told me that unless I helped them by becoming a government informant and by infiltrating animal rights and environmental groups, that they would put me on the domestic terrorist list. And this was just a few months after September 11th. So, you know, who know? I had no idea what the implications of something that like that would be. I didn't think even for a second about becoming an informant, but it definitely scared me. And that's part of why I bring that up in the book to talk about that fear. And to me, that's really the power of all of this is, is making people afraid. So you mentioned the Shack 7 there. Can you maybe tell us a little more about that group and, and what their case was all about? Yeah, so the Shack 7 were a group of activists who were involved in a incredibly effective international campaign against that same laboratory, against Huntington Life Sciences. And so this was a campaign that began in the UK and quickly spread to many countries around the world. And it kind of took the model of like the anti-apartheid protests in South Africa, of encouraging divestment, uh, not just targeting the company itself, but targeting any companies that did business with it. You know, as Shaq would call it, you know, the financial pillars of support for this corporation. And the whole reasoning was that these animal testing labs don't really care about public support. I mean, they, they operate in secret. The general public has no idea what's going on. Um, and they do it to make money. And so Shaq was effective by targeting those businesses. And so through home protests and leafleting, disorderly uh, protests and disruptions, civil disobedience, um, and also supporting a, a more diverse range of tactics, including stealing animals from laboratories and uh, vandalizing ATM machines. Shaq didn't do any of those things, but they publicly supported it on their website. And so what the government argued 
was that by running this website, Shaq was part of a criminal conspiracy and that they conspired to commit animal enterprise terrorism by hurting the profits of this company, uh, Hunting and Life Sciences. And it was a really ambitious legal argument by the government. Um, this law was already on the books, this law called the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, but they never try to use it in that way. And in my book, I really trace the history of how these corporate executives were instrumental in putting pressure on the government, working with them every step of the way to try to expand the scope of this terrorism legislation to go after people that were involved in a lawful, you know, albeit controversial, but lawful above ground campaign. And those activists were sentenced to between one and six years in prison. Um, they're all out of prison now and moving on with their activism and with their lives. But that case was significant, not just for the government and for this kind of national perspective, but it's significant for the movement as well. I mean, it was really intended to send a message to the wider movement about these effective tactics and to try to um, put a stop to them immediately. I mean, the rest of these similar industries around the world were watching this case really closely. And in some of these um, internal memos and such that I talk about in the book, they really viewed this case as kind of a domino. They thought that if these activists were able to effectively shut down a multinational corporation, that they would inevitably, and they would, move on to the next corporation and the next in pursuit of their uh, social justice goals. And so they really saw a lot on the line with this case and um, threw a lot into it in targeting these activists. So just to be clear, these activists were sentenced to one to six years in prison for running a website. Yes. And, you know, when I talk about this case, it's always interesting because it seems like you have to be leaving something out, right? Like, it's like you're somehow ignoring, oh, they also firebomb someone's car or they kidnap someone or, you know, some significant um, criminal activity. But the government didn't argue that. I mean, it was all about guilt by association. You know, to be clear, this was a controversial campaign in that there were people doing illegal things. There were people stealing animals. Like I said, there were people vandalizing property, um, having, you know, home demonstrations that were sometimes legal and sometimes illegal. Um, you know, there was a lot of very heated, uh, you know, aggressive rhetoric. But these activists weren't accused of anything like that. They ran a website. And the way it worked is... Anytime any action happened related to the campaign, whether it was a protest or breaking windows at a laboratory, it was sent in to the Shack website, and these organizers posted it all up there. Sometimes they would post it with kind of a snotty commentary supporting what happened. Um, I would always kind of compare it to Nelson from The Simpsons, you know, it's this kind of like, uh -huh, like pointing and laughing as it was taking place. But they didn't do it. Um, and the government said that was a conspiracy. And if we then go to the next step from making a website to people who are actually engaged in much more extra legal activities, can you tell us a little bit about the Earth Liberation Front and the story of its emergence in North America? Sure. So really, the ELF grew out of well, there are a couple narratives about its growth. I mean, the real difficulty is here when you're talking about clandestine 
underground organizations like the Earth Liberation Front, it's really difficult to talk about a, a concrete history of its emergence. So there are a couple stories of this. Um, the kind of consensus is that it grew out of activities in the UK, the Earth Liberation Front's emergence there. And then it also grew out of a environmental movement in the United States with groups like Earth First and people becoming increasingly frustrated uh, with tactics not being effective enough, particularly in the cases that I talk about in the book um, with a group of Earth Liberation Front activists in the Pacific Northwest. They were frustrated about this lack of efficacy, but they were also really fighting back against uh, increased police brutality and police presence at demonstrations, violence against activists, violence against nonviolent uh, activists engaged in tree sits and things like this. So that's kind of the backdrop of where it came from. And the Earth Liberation Front, you know, beginning in the mid-90s in the United States, was doing things like targeting, um, you know, corporations logging old growth forests, targeting genetic engineering, uh, using economic sabotage to not only directly target these industries and hurt their profits, but also use it as a kind of media spectacle to get public attention on these issues, um, of which there really wasn't any at the time. You know, in that time period in the mid-90s, there wasn't, you know, Al Gore and his inconvenient truth. There was not this, what I think is a very widespread public awareness and engagement about these issues uh, on environmental issues. And the Earth Liberation Front, for better or worse of however people feel about those tactics, certainly put those issues on a national spotlight. In that sense, you have a couple of quotes in the book that are quite striking. One is from uh, John Lewis, Assistant Deputy Director at the FBI, telling a 2005 Senate committee meeting that the number one domestic terrorist threat is the eco-terrorism animal rights movement, and then a quote from uh, Republican Representative Greg Walden, where he claims that the Earth Liberation Front poses a threat no less heinous than those of the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. The craziest part of that quote being that he said that on September fucking 12th, before the smoke had even cleared from lower Manhattan. And uh, my question is, how can this be the case? Well, in I think that's what's baffling to a lot of folks is, you know, you hear quotes like that. And I think in the U.S., people still want to laugh it off. I mean, you have to laugh to an extent. I mean, I certainly do all the time as kind of a coping mechanism of dealing with these issues and what's going on in the world. But like you said, I mean, these statements were right after September 11th, as in like that day. And I think we need to really situate this in a broader timeline. I mean, these campaigns against animal rights and environmental groups really stretch back uh, in a contemporary sense to the mid-1980s. About 1985, industry groups created a new word called eco-terrorism, and they began using it in the press and in their sound bites and uh, white paper reports and congressional hearings. And over the next 20-some-odd years, you know, they got some success in really injecting that language into the popular debate and really changing the terms of the debate so that activists were no longer monkey wrenchers or saboteurs or according to some of the you know research I talk about in the book, 
newspapers were calling these activists eco-warriors and heroes. And they use that language to really shift public perception of these movements to the point where, like you said, when September 11th happened, um, these corporations and these politicians really saw it as an opportunity. They saw it as an opportunity to go even further than they'd ever been able to do leading up to that in the 20 years, 15, 20 years leading up to that and to completely put the nail in the coffin and, and to really cement that language into the popular discourse. And so, you know, that talk of suspecting whether uh, environmentalists were actually responsible for September 11th, it's outrageous, but it had, um, a political utility to it because these politicians were able to push for congressional hearings. Some of them wanted these hearings to happen just weeks after September 11th and the attacks. But then they used these congressional hearings to create more of a public spectacle about environmental activists being terrorists. That then turned into increased FBI attention and Homeland Security attention, which helped further legislation and it's all this kind of like snowball effect that's been going for for many years now well the title of your book and website is uh, green is the new red and this seems to imply a parallel between the widespread demonization of alleged communists in 1950s america and the prevailing order's view of the modern environmental movement as you're discussing now uh, can you elaborate a little on on what those parallels are sure well i started using that analogy because I thought it was a useful mechanism for looking at really abstract concepts. And I think if there's one period in uh, U.S. history that most people to some degree would at least recognize was black mark in terms of government repression and uh, targeting political dissidents, it would be the Red Scare. And so I started looking at the, the specific tactics that were used in that era and how it worked. And what I came to find out is that there are really striking parallels, not just between the Red Scare and today, but I would argue between every era of increased government repression. And I think the most important of those is kind of what we were just talking about with the power of language. You know, in the Red Scare, it was using that rhetoric of communist, whether or not someone was actually a communist, whether or not they actually believed um, those values or had any involvement in the Communist Party was really irrelevant. I mean, it just became a hammer to go after political dissidents. And I would argue that's precisely what's happening right now with the war on terrorism. You know, it's been 10 years since the September 11th attacks over that. And it really doesn't matter what the specific meaning of that term is anymore. It's just being used as a, a political weapon. More specifically, though, during the Red Scare, there were three specific types of tools, I would argue, that were used. I mean, one would be this kind of use of language, or I'd call it extra-legal tactics. I mean, using popular culture and um, the media. And the second would be using legislation. And during the Red Scare, we saw laws specifically uh, targeting communists and dissidents for increased penalties. I mean, it, going so far as to prohibit um, in one case, the sending or receiving of communist political propaganda in the mail. So just sending literature was outlawed. Um, the third would be the use of the courts. So really pushing the boundaries 
of existing laws. And I think all those things are happening right now. Um, you know, I address the use of language, but in the in Washington, there's new laws that have been crafted specifically targeting these groups. At the state level, we have new laws targeting uh, undercover investigators who expose what happens in factory farms, in some cases labeling them as terrorists. And then in the, the third component of those legal tactics today, we have prosecutors who are really pushing the limits of existing laws, pushing for what are called terrorism enhancement penalties against acts of sabotage, um, pushing for people like Tim DeChristopher, who's an environmental activist, to be sentenced to two years in prison for doing nothing more than nonviolent civil disobedience against uh, oil and gas auction of public lands. And, you know, I kind of spell all this out, not really to argue in any way that what's going on right now is is the same as what happened during the Red Scare or that it's worse or anything like that. I just think it's really important to put this one in a historical perspective and two to recognize the patterns of how this all works. Because I think once we do that, it, it really takes some of the power away from it, from it and we start to um, think more clearly about this backlash and we can organize more effectively against it. Tim to Christopher, he was he was charged for bidding at an auction on land that he had he knew he had no money for, right? Is that that was his crime? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I for going through that real fast. He um as a University of Utah student, there was an oil and gas lease auction in which the government was auctioning off lands to corporations. And so Tim knew he didn't have any money, but he went to the auction anyway. And and every time a piece of land was up for bid, he would raise his uh, bidder's paddle. He was bidder number 70 to inflate the cost of the land so that at least it would cause um, these corporations to spend a little bit of money in destroying public lands. What's important about that case too is that later that auction was ruled illegal by a federal court. So Tim effectively disrupted and cost these corporations millions of dollars in an illegal auction. But it's not the, any of the corporate executives who are in prison it's him for two years right it's insane and he was he charged under the animal enterprise terrorism act no he wasn't um okay. you know I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now on the specific charge that he got but it wasn't under the animal enterprise terrorism act um right after that case though some local uh, lawmakers in utah actually introduced a new state law that would attempt to label what he did as eco-terrorism um, fortunately that failed but I think that was really reflective of how some of these politicians, you know, situate these type of tactics uh, in terms of terrorism. They view it as one and the same. Okay, so the the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act is that a federal law, or is yes, that... that's a federal law. Okay, can you can you elaborate on what that is for our sure. listeners? So that it's a law that was passed in 2006. In a bit earlier, we were talking about the Shack case and the Animal Enterprise Protection Act. So this was a law that goes even further and expands upon that existing statute. It goes so far as to wrap up anyone who effectively targets corporate profits of an animal enterprise and causes the loss of profits. And then it goes even further and it says it's not just um, criminal activity to cause a loss of profits for the animal enterprise, but to cause a loss of profits for any corporation that does business 
with an animal enterprise. And under the law, this is called tertiary targeting. So really this was a complete response to the shack campaign and how effective it was. So when I testified against this law in 2006 before Congress, the members of the committee and the FBI and the Department of Justice, they all sat there and said with a straight face, our hands are tied in going after these terrorists. We need new laws and new power to target these extremists, right? That was the popular message. But it was a complete lie. I mean, all the while, shack activists had already been convicted under the previous law, sentenced to prison for between one and six years. Um, and these politicians and corporations were using it as an opportunity to go even further. Right now, there's a challenge in the courts by the Center for Constitutional Rights that argues that this new law is unconstitutional because it's had a chilling effect on First Amendment free speech activity. So in other words, it hasn't specifically outlawed protesting or writing about these issues or speaking out against them, but it's made people afraid. And the lawsuit argues that's even more damaging uh, in some ways than this outright ban on speech because it's really cowered some people into silence uh, and made people afraid of being labeled as terrorists. And because of that, it's really violating uh, their First Amendment rights. Can you tell us uh, a little more about the story of Daniel McGowan and uh, Operation Backfire, which is one of the primary stories that you follow in the book? Sure. Daniel is one of a group of people uh, that were involved in a series of crimes by the Earth Liberation Front uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Daniel was convicted of his involvement in two crimes targeting genetic engineering and the logging of old growth forests. Now, it's important to note, and also when we were talking about the Earth Liberation Front previously, that some of these crimes were quite serious in that they involved arson, um, they burned down empty buildings, burned down SUVs, logging equipment, and things like this. But in the history of this underground group and in the history of the radical environmental movement, period, no one has ever been injured. And I think that's really important to point out because the government pushed for what's called a terrorism enhancement penalty in Daniel McGowan's case. That means that they argued that in addition to him being convicted for his crimes, he should be receiving an enhanced penalty um, and be reclassified as a terrorist within the legal system because of the political nature of what he did. And this was really significant in Daniel's case and in, in many other individuals' cases because the government hadn't done this before. They hadn't tried to target environmentalists and in this way. Um, the terrorism enhancement penalty has you know, a history of growing out of the Oklahoma City bombing in the, uh, the United States. But this was really the first time of trying to use that type of statute against saboteurs. And it had consequences for McGowan and for the others um, in that Daniel McGowan is now imprisoned in a uh, secretive prison facility called a communications management unit, which is a prison unit specifically created for people who are classified as uh, domestic terrorism threats. And because he's housed there, he's 
radically restricted in his communications to the outside world. He's not allowed to hug his wife. He's not allowed to uh, hold hands with his niece. He's not allowed to have any human contact visits um, with family or with friends. I mean, it's really the restrictions on this, on Daniel and on the others who are housed in these places. It was against a wide body of uh, human rights research and to what are the most humane and effective ways of um, so-called rehabilitating prisoners. So there's you know, quite a few consequences of using that rhetoric in Daniel's case. Why do you think Daniel is in that CMU? I think it's a really good question. Um, Daniel is there, and yet his co-defendants, even ones who have committed much more serious and, and more uh, a higher quantity of crimes, are not. And so in my research of that, I really started to look into the history of these units and how the government talks about them. You know, I think it really says a lot that in a recent proposal by the government to make these communications management units permanent, they referred to them as prison units for people with, quote, inspirational significance. Wow. I think that term says a lot. I think it's a really benign way of saying that these are political prisons for political prisoners. I mean, Daniel McGowan, I think perhaps more than any of his co-defendants, was the most uh, vocal, the most kind of media savvy. He had a, you know, a, a website organizing around him and supporting him. He was doing media outreach. He had a big group of supporters that were doing media outreach. He was on Democracy Now! Uh, right before his uh, sentencing. And when I was sitting there in the courtroom, the judge made a point of talking about this and of how he hasn't shown any uh, penance for his crimes. You know, he's out there working with the press and doing things like that. And I think that helps explain it. I mean, he really was seen as having this inspirational significance for the environmental movement, for, um, you know, just the wider group of activists who are paying attention. And recently, just a couple of days ago, um, some activists received, I think it was by mistake, a notice from the Bureau of Prisons that their letters to Daniel McGowan had been denied because they included articles about social movement issues. And on the justification, the Bureau of Prisons specifically said it was because Daniel McGowan is, quote, a political prisoner. It's, I think this is just incredible to me. It goes against what has been publicly said for years about the nature of these cases. Um, and I think it's quite transparent that Daniel and, and many other people are are political prisoners, and that's why they're being singled out in this way. Right. That is fucking crazy. So why is this, en- this enhancement that got Daniel McGowan into the CMU seemingly selectively applied, and it doesn't seem to be applied in more uh, objectively more heinous acts committed by white supremacists or right-wing extremists? I, I kind of think there are two parts to that. So, I mean, I think one question is why is it not even applied to other uh, environmental or animal rights cases? And for that, I, I don't have much of an answer other than that I think it's um, simply used as a tool when that tool is appropriate for the government to construct whatever image it wants. So, for instance, in these cases, um, Daniel McGowan was, sent to, or was threatened with life 
plus 335 years in prison. That was the, the public statement the government was saying of what they're threatening him with unless he cooperated with them. And I think that's part of the use of this terrorism enhancement is that it's really made to make people incredibly afraid. Um, you know, once if, if someone's been arrested, they're already facing the full weight of the U.S. government weighing down upon them. But to have the government argue that you should receive a terrorism enhancement on top of that, I think can make people feel really hopeless and really alone. And I think that's part of the tactic is to make people afraid in the hopes of getting them to uh, turn on each other and become informants. Daniel McGowan did not do that. Um, but some people in the case did. But I think the second part of that, of what you're saying is a much bigger issue. It's why is the government focusing on these people and not on right-wing groups, militias, anti-abortion extremists who have actually murdered people, who have actually had a history of bloodshed and taking lives and causing uh, violence against innocent people. And it was really difficult to, to, to kind of wrap my mind around that in researching the book. And the best way I can, I think I can explain it is that it's partly due to the corporate pressure and the profit motive that's been clearly present for decades in the lobbying of corporations. I mean, there's no um, profit motive, there's no corporate interest behind prosecuting right-wing extremists. And in some ways, that might alienate uh, more conservative and corporate financial backers to go after you know, pro, pro-life groups and things like that. But I think more theoretically, I would say it's because those groups really don't represent a threat. I think in a lot of ways, they're really just extreme manifestations of what are the dominant cultural values. You know, racist groups, uh, pro-life groups that are murdering abortion doctors or anti-women, militia groups who are targeting Muslims and raising this kind of like uh, holy war and Christian warfare. I mean, these are all, all really just extreme manifestations of what we see every day as the status quo in the United States. So I think in that way, the government doesn't view them as the same type of a threat because, you know, if you look at the internal reports of the FBI, of Homeland Security, when they talk about right-wing threats, they just talk about crimes. You know, they'll list what crimes they were involved in. But when they talk about environmentalists or about anarchists or about animal rights activists, it's all about ideology. And I think it's because they just really can't wrap their head around what these people represent. I mean, right-wing groups, it's easy. Like, we see these values every day, and they're just kind of carrying it to a more um, more violent directly violent end but with these environmentalists they in anarchists they can't wrap their head around the beliefs that motivate them well this paints a pretty terrifying picture for the immediate future of progressive political dissent in america um where do you think it's all headed and what do you think can be done to turn the ship around and that's always the the hardest question because i think you're right i, I think it does paint a terrifying picture but the purpose of my work is not to, you know, spread the message that folks listening to this program are going to end up in a communications management unit or that they're going to be hit with a terrorism enhancement or that they're going to be prosecuted under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. Because, you know, 
simply in terms of sheer numbers of the number of people directly affected by this, that's just not going to happen. I think the task in front of us is to confront that fear. And to me, the the first step in doing that is to really get an accurate picture of what's going on. Um, you know, I've been focusing on this issue for a really long time now. And part of the reason I've decided to do that is that I, th I think there's power in it. I think there's power in recognizing specifically how corporations and the government are fighting back. I think there's power in recognizing how afraid they truly are of the potential of these activists and of these movements and of these tactics. And I think we can draw inspiration from that. Um, uh, you know, I think we really have to remind ourselves that all of this is taking place because these activists have been incredibly effective. You know, it's easy to lose sight of that. And certainly I do pretty much every morning when I'm reading, you know, RSS feeds and news articles and just seeing how grim everything is. I mean, it's really hard not to feel dark and to feel pretty hopeless. But, you know, we have to remind ourselves that this is happening for a reason. And it's because these activists have been effective and it's because there's a lot of work to be done. And so I think that the task ahead, at least in the near term, is to raise awareness about what's going on. You know, I've been... I do a lot of lectures and um, writing, obviously. And one thing I've never seen happen after a lecture, after um, publishing something, is that people you know, would write in and say, oh, I'm never going to be an activist again. Or, I, I don't know uh, if I can ever speak out now. You know, I've never seen that happen. I think that's really telling to me that you know, there's a lot of fear, but there's also a lot of rage. And I, I think we have to shift those emotions. We have to confront that fear outright and turn it into rage and come together in, um, in resisting these tactics. Will Potter, author of Green is the New Red on City Lights Books, an unrepentant domestic terrorist. Thank you for joining <laughs> us on Escape Velocity Radio. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Feel like the same old song and dance From my Athens to Rome, Spain and France Stars, stripes, Union Jack It's the same crap, nothing's changed Feel like the same old story told It get a war for the silver, war for gold The whole world slave to the status quo It's the same, yo Nothing's changed I, 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 I prove this message because this year Change has to be more than a slogan. From George to Barack, they still stock for the hawks. Policy feed hot, shot in one drop. While the cop the flock are like flies to shit lie drop. On top of Iraq guns cock before the tower drop. Plot predate bulls on my pop. They get hot while Ramallah got landlocked. They don't play nice in the sandboxes. Cops put bodies to chalk while prison get stocked for the dudes who smoke pot. They globe trot. They post a profit orbit in control thought. In stark options, populists just a bunch of sheep run a flock till bleeding meats on a chopping block. Peeps run a shop until they drop or get got or the credit stops. Hot liberty serving you burning blitz. Greek burgers with cheese. Jesus Christ with an M16. Squeezing heat. Freedom is serving you evil. Murderers build a burger trustees. Rules beat freaks say war is peace. Ha, brother, please. 
from whip cracks, shackles, and into jack boots, bats to cap blasts, into gas to clack clack flanks. I'll take that, the fascist business class, aristocrat, the masters of passion, capital craft, and buck passer, buck taker, fucking bastard, buck fuck on the masses, a dick of bull, poke on the low class, broke his asses, free trade packs, they got enacted that. Well, Derek, looks like we've come to the end of another episode of Escape Velocity Radio. Yes, we have! I feel like I'm smarter. Do you feel smarter? Yes! Well, thanks for letting us be part of your day, everybody. We appreciate your feedback. Shoot us an email at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or if you're really keen leave us a voicemail at 1-701-213-4483 and who knows we may even play your message on the show thereby immortalizing your name on air not to mention a variety of international terrorist watch lists iTunes the status quo is the same yo nothing's changed yo Everything just stay the same. I approve this message because this year, change has to be more than a slogan. Oh, dear. Ah, oh, no. Oh, phew, sorry.